In what Jesus knew would be his final private conversation with his disciples, he made sure to emphasize four main themes. That he would send the Spirit, that we should be obedient, that we could expect trials and persecution when we entered on his path, and that we face the prospect of being one with him as he was one with the Father. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to our podcast. This week's lesson, number 22, Continue Ye in My Love. We're covering John chapters 13 through 17. And I speak to you today as someone speaking from the dust, not the dust as Moroni did of a book buried in the actual earth, but the dust of audio files buried in the time release features of SoundCloud. Nevertheless, um, I'm not currently speaking to you, but I am rafting the Colorado River and I'm gone for two weeks very grateful for modern technology that allows me to teach this lesson and it's a it's truly a wonderful one so let's dive right in uh, again if you should care to uh, email the program please send an email to gt at gospeltoctrine.com I'll answer that after the 16th when I return and please leave us a review on SoundCloud on Facebook or on iTunes your five-star reviews and your shares all of your likes, all of your engagements on social media, they help to find us new listeners and to help more people study with us the scriptures every week. So in chapter 13, now, well, actually, we're going to go back a little bit to chapter 12, but first we're going to discuss what's going on. So John covers some things in the way that he talks about Jesus's final days uh, differently than the other evangelists, and that's because John, writing last, has access to all the other Gospels. So this is what I believe, uh, and so therefore he knows what stories have been told and what stories have not been told, and he's filling in the gaps the way that only someone as close as he was to Jesus could. And so the interesting thing about his coverage of the, the Last Supper is that there is no supper. He, he starts when dinner is over, and then he talks a lot about just the conversation surrounding the meal. Now, immediately before chapter 13 begins, um, and, and it was later, remember, it's later people who imposed these chapter breaks, not John himself. So John was writing in chapter 12, the entirety of chapter 12 was about how Jesus crowned is the same as Jesus crucified, or in other words, uh, that Jesus ascends to his greatest glory in the moment in which he's killed, or in the day in which he's killed. And he makes this point in several different ways. You'll have to go back a couple of weeks to to fully understand what I'm saying by this, and listen to our lesson about John chapter 12. But one point I want to, to cover again, and that is in, in chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, John is tying together the the Lord Jehovah and the suffering servant of Jehovah from Isaiah chapters 6 and chapter 30, 53, uh, respectively. So remember in chapter 6, this is Isaiah's what's called his throne theophany, where Isaiah first sees the Lord. And he sees, them, he sees him in the temple, and he describes his glory, and he describes God as being lifted up and exalted, or, or ramvinisa, which is Hebrew for highly exalted, lifted up and exalted, raised up on high. You would think there were many things in the scriptures that would be raised up on high, but in fact, there are two things that are ramvinisa, and that is the Lord Jehovah here in Isaiah chapter 6, and the servant of Jehovah, the suffering servant from Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. And Again, there's one more parallel that I can see. There's probably more. But in chapter 6, the commandment of Jehovah to Isaiah is, take my word forth, but you're going to, you're going to find that the heart of this people is been, has been made fat, and that seeing, they do not understand. Hearing, they're made deaf. So they're blind and deaf even though they see and hear. They're not going to be willing to listen to you. And then again, in Isaiah 53, the, the chapter starts out, 
the people asking, who, who's believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, we don't see God's hand in any of this. And John points that out. He says the, that no one understood what Jesus meant when he was teaching about his death and his exaltation being the same. And that was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. So John, by quoting both of these chapters in the same couple of verses, he's saying, it's now clear to me that the Lord Jehovah, high and lifted up, is the same as this suffering servant, who is also highly exalted. Why is that important? Why are we going back over chapter 12? Because John is continuing. For him, he's writing this down This is the continuation of the same theme because Jesus begins chapter 13 right away, right after dinner. He puts a towel on, puts a little apron on, he bends over and fills a basin with water and starts washing the disciples' feet. Now this is the act of a slave, a servant. Somebody, it's a menial task because uh, these men are walking, what are they walking around in? You know, think about it. They live in an agrarian society, an old uh, Iron Age society where Uh, Animals are on the streets, so it's dirt, it's mud, it's awful from the animals, it's whatever might be on the ground, and it's considered beneath people, uh, beneath especially a lord, to to wash his guests' feet. However, it is part of hospitality and service to see that the feet are washed. And Jesus takes this task upon himself, naming himself their servant. This is not accidental ordering of the events by John. This is very purposeful, and it's showing that that not only is Jesus the Lord, he calls himself their Lord and Master, and then he says, now I'm going to serve you, and if I do not wash your feet, you have no place with me. Um, So I think it would be profitable at this point to read Isaiah chapter 53 and understand who the suffering servant is. Um, And I'm going to read this in a translation called the Good News Translation, which is a little bit more idiosyncratic, well, quite a bit more idiosyncratic in modern English than the King James Translation. And it should be a little clearer to understand. So uh, we're going to read the end of Isaiah 52 and then follow right into Isaiah 53 and understand what this passage is saying about the servant that, that Isaiah prophesied would come and be the Messiah. This is, uh, we're going to begin with Isaiah 52, verse 13. The Good News Translation. The Lord says, My servant will succeed in his task. He will be highly honored. Many people, and that's Ramvinisa, many people were shocked when they saw him. He was so disfigured that he hardly, hardly looked human. But now many nations will marvel at him, and kings will be speechless with amazement. They will see and understand something they had never known. The people reply, Who would have believed what we now report? Who could have seen the Lord's hand in this? It was the will of the Lord that his servant grow like a plant taking root in dry ground. He had no dignity or beauty to make us take notice of him. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing that would draw us to him. We despised him and rejected him. He endured suffering and pain. No one would even look at him. We ignored him as if he were nothing. But he endured the suffering that should have been ours, the pain that we should have borne. All the while we thought that his suffering was punishment sent by God, but because of our sins he was wounded, beaten because of the evil we did. We are healed by the punishment he suffered, made whole by the blows he received. All of us were like sheep that were lost, each of us going his own way. But the Lord made the punishment fall on him, the punishment all of us deserved. He was treated harshly, but endured it humbly. He never said a word. Like a lamb about to be slaughtered, like a sheep about to be sheared, he never said a word. He was arrested and sentenced and led led off to die, and no one cared about his fate. He was put to death for the sins of our people. He was placed in a grave with those who were evil. He was buried with the rich, even though he had never committed a crime or ever told a lie. The Lord says, It was my will that he should suffer. His death was a sacrifice to bring forgiveness. And so he will see his descendants. He will live a long life, and through him my purpose will succeed. After a life of suffering, he will again have joy. He will know that he did not suffer in vain. My devoted servant, with whom I am pleased, will bear the punishment of many, and for his sake I will forgive them. And so I will give him a place of honor, a place among the great and powerful. 
He willingly gave his life and shared the fate of evil men. He took the place of many sinners and prayed that they might be forgiven. It's so powerful to read that verse in modern English and understand how closely it matches the final days, weeks, and hours of Jesus' life and his mission from God. The, the Jewish perspective on this chapter is that the, that the prophet Isaiah is writing about them as a nation and their fate, that their sufferings and their persecutions at the hands of the surrounding nations is their way of taking upon them the sins of the, of the world. And that is a correct view, and it is a limited one. And John makes that clear. John, who knew the, the prophets of old as well as anyone who studied the scriptures, I imagine if he didn't study them before he became Jesus' disciple, he spent the rest of his life studying them. Uh, so he knew them as well as any rabbi, and, and much better at, because he was taught by Jesus himself. And therefore, he knew exactly what Isaiah meant. He was, he was saying that the fact that this applies to the nation of Israel is not a limiting thing. It's actually an illuminating thing. They were meant to be a type of Jesus and not the other way around. Very powerful testimony from John. The fact that he quotes this scripture shows that he understands the eternal nature and the, the powerful witness that has been born about Jesus throughout the centuries. Uh, incidentally, I'm planning a special episode that talks about um, what scriptures from the Old Testament presage the life of Jesus and the mission of Jesus to die and be crowned in the same moment. And that's coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, So here we are in chapter 13. Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And uh, when Jesus comes to Peter, Peter says, Lord, please don't, you're you're not going to wash my feet. He's in his, I, I imagine that in his heart, he's feeling that this is not the place of Jesus to humble himself in this way. And Jesus says something very interesting in verse eight. If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Now, uh, it may be known to you, it may not be known to you, but the washing of the feet is not just a service, a humble service that Jesus is performing but a priesthood ordinance that he's performing for his disciples to let them know that they will be lifted up with him at the last day. And so without getting too much into the particulars, uh, because of the sacred nature of this subject, let me just say that uh, I think it's an interesting opportunity for us to examine where we get the forms of our priesthood ordinances from. Now, you remember when we talked about the baptism of Jesus, I asked the same question. And what I asked was, why are we baptized? Not why do we make a covenant to take upon us the name of Christ and that we're going to strengthen the feeble knees, lift up the hands that hang down, etc. But why do we do it in the form that we do it? Why are we immersed in water? And Paul's answer in Romans chapter Five or chapter 6, I can't, it escapes me at the moment, uh, is that we are buried unto the death of Jesus Christ. And this is obviously true. Baptism is a symbol of the death of Jesus. But it's more than that. We get the form of baptism from the fact that Jesus chose to be baptized by immersion himself. And why did he choose that? He, do, he wasn't baptized unto his death, right? Jesus had the opportunity to choose whatever form he wanted that covenant to come in. So why did he choose that? And we discussed at the time that it was a potent symbol. It would have been uh, a rallying cry for anyone observing it, that he was the fulfillment of the promise that had been extended to ancient Israel, that ancient Israel lived in him, that the same way that they passed through the, the many bodies of water that they had, but especially the Red Sea, and then came out on the other side, transformed. They, they lived in one state of existence prior to passing through the water, and they lived in another state after they emerged. These, this was the imagery that Jesus was trying to evoke through his baptism. So when we're baptized, we're baptized not only unto Jesus' death, but unto his baptism. 
So there are certain ordinances of the priesthood that benefit from this kind of symbolism. The sacrament is another, and we'll talk more about that next week. But um, here we are talking about the washing of the feet, and it is a sacred priesthood ordinance, as were probably many of the things that Jesus did that we're unaware of. Obviously, he would say to people without raising his arm or placing his hands on them, he would say, be healed, and they were healed. And this was done by the power of the priesthood. Because Jesus is priesthood incarnate, anything he says is the power of the priesthood speaking. And so it's hard to separate sometimes from the counts in the scriptures. Is he, is he exercising the priesthood here? Is he, just, is he just talking? And it's hard to know if there was ever a time when he wasn't exercising the priesthood. So why did this particular ordinance take the form that it did? Well, answering that question is the reason why I had just spent so long talking about the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Uh, Jesus is, is demonstrating that his, his mission and his, is, he's not above being our servant, but his mission is to serve us and to be below us in the sense that he, his needs are our needs. And then as he says, if I have washed your feet, how much ought ye to wash one another's feet? In other words, if I have abased myself in front of you, don't you think that you're not above doing the same yourself? So this is what he's symbolizing by this ordinance, as well as teaching. Now, washing of the feet was an important ritual in Middle Eastern hospitality. And what it says was, you're safe here. You're, you're away from the, the dirt of the street. You're in my home, and my, my home is extended to you. And this is what this ordinance means, is that where I live, you can come and dwell as well. So um, it's just interesting to, to look in the, into the forms, for example, into the washings and anointings that occur in the temple, to look into the forms of the ordinances of the priesthood that we observe and to try to understand what they mean. They're, they're very specifically trying to teach us important lessons. And so it's profitable to examine them. Now, um, in 13 verse 8, what Jesus said was, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Uh, this identifies this as a what we would call a saving ordinance. Nevertheless, it's one that I believe few people um, receive in mortality. But we'll all receive it one day at the hands of Jesus or someone that he has authorized to perform this ordinance, and it will be part of our entrance into his kingdom, into his home, to live with him. Now, as I indicated in the introduction, uh, there are some chief themes that Jesus keeps hitting again and again. He talks in what we could almost look at as Hebrew poetry, where he repeats the same ideas interspersed with each other, you know, mixed together, and then he'll come back to one idea, he'll tie them together. And Jesus has been, in the last several chapters that we've studied, establishing himself in the tradition of the greatest of the Hebrew prophets, showing that he can, he's right up there with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel in declaring poetically and in, in symbolically in grand fashion the lessons that God is having him teach. So he fits right in with this Old Testament tradition of uh, prophets decrying the evils of the people and showing them and being willing to put themselves on the line. And he's going to pay the ultimate price as many of them did, but not all. And he's going to pay that price in a way that none of them did. And so it's, it's wonderful to have studied the Old Testament and see that Jesus is the culmination. He's not, a, he's not just the beginning of a New Testament, but he's also such a fine and shining example of the Old. And we'll see that as we talk next week about the sacrament, that it was the culmination of promises that had been made for centuries. So the, the themes that Jesus keeps hitting are first, the Holy Ghost. He promises, he says to the disciples many times, I'm going to leave and I'm going away. And if I didn't leave, it wouldn't be good for you. You don't want me to leave. You don't understand why I have to leave, but I'm going away to go to my Father. And because I do that, I'm going to be able to send the Spirit to you. So this is one of the themes. And we may get to, as, as I, I'm going to 
going to expose at the beginning here what these themes are, and I may be able to get to uh, several scriptures for each, or I, I may not. We'll see how the lesson goes. The second theme is obedience. And Jesus says again and again, love one another. If you love me, keep my commandments. And so he talks about love and obedience being tied together. And uh, for example, I love God and everybody knows I'm showing that everyone can know that I love God by keeping the commandments of the Father. So right now I have a commandment to keep and it's going to be painful for me but I want everyone to know how much I love God by keeping this difficult task that has been set in front of me. And you can let me know how much you love me and how much you love God by obeying his word and keeping my words. Uh, An important and very profound lesson there. Then he tells the disciples, look, you shouldn't expect that your lives are going to be easy because you're following me. Look at my life. My life is not easy. And this is probably the most important lesson we can learn from the scriptures. And I, and I say that, I don't say that lightly because why do people turn to religion and why do they choose to believe in God? It's not easy. There's a certain amount of pain involved in putting aside your own will, believing in something you can't see, and choosing to follow a path that involves some sacrifice. Right? So why do we do it? It's because the, the meaninglessness of life hurts too much. If, if the suffering that we go through in life has no meaning, then why, why would we do it? And so we feel deep within us this desire to have all of it mean something. And when we discover that there might be a creator, there might be a being who decreed that we would do this and that it would teach us something that would be ultimately for our eternal good, that, that resonates so deeply with many of us. And therefore, we come to religion to explain all of this and to, and to have us uh, feel a kinship with someone who would be able to touch those echoes of this deep question, right? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there suffering in my life or the, in the lives of the people that I love? And this Jesus is addressing this very question and he's addressing it head on. And he's saying, you should not expect this. This is the point, right? So many people think, and so many atheists are atheists because they think that there is no possible reason why a loving God could allow suffering. And Jesus's entire life is a contradiction to that idea. And the, the, one of his names is Emmanuel, God with us. And as we'll discuss I'm actually not going to go too much more into that idea because it's the main idea of my next lesson. But Jesus is going to walk through our trials with us rather than help us to escape from them before, before they hurt. And what he's saying here is, why, why should you expect to escape having things be difficult because you're following me? The fact that you're following me means that it's going to be difficult because look how hard they are for me. And I have never done anything wrong. He doesn't say that specifically, but he, he says, why, why would you think that suffering is tied to wrongdoing when you see my life? Such an important lesson for all of us to remember. I mean, this, this concept could not be more important because every day we study the scriptures and then we go out in the world and we kind of maybe if you're like me at least, you compartmentalize a little bit and you think, okay, that was my spiritual time and now I'm, I'm hitting the daily grind or the daily struggle and I'm not thinking too much about what the fact that God may have ordained this suffering for me. I'm trying to minimize my suffering. Now, I think everybody does that. There's nothing wrong with that. The point is Jesus is saying, there's nothing wrong with you when you can't, when you can't minimize your suffering and things just hurt. Or things are just difficult. Maybe, maybe you don't feel like things are bad for you, but it's just hard, and life is a struggle. Why should you expect it to be different when you look at my life? Finally, uh, so those are those are three important themes, and they're sort of mixed between throughout chapters fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen. And then finally, this idea of oneness, and this is almost 
chapter 17 is almost totally dedicated to this idea. So Jesus, again and again, talks about he and the Father, how he and the Father are one, and how the disciples, he wants the disciples to also share that unity, and how the Spirit is going to provide the means. I wanted to talk a little bit at this point about the mainstream Christian idea of Trinity. And, you know, in uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we're brought up to reject certain ideas that are found in mainstream Christianity. And the Trinity is one of them, the orthodox idea of the Trinity. So let me explain, um, number one, what that idea is, and number two, what I think our attitude should be towards it. So first of all, um, John chapter 1 gives us kind of a good idea of how mainstream Christianity sees this. The Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus and the Father are the same being in some way that we can't quite comprehend, because how can you be with God and be God at the same time? And the, the Word, as we know, as, as we studied, is a translation of the word logos. And logos was had so many different meanings, but it was this concept of an aspect of God that man could understand. That It was almost like the, the, the face of God that humans could interact with. Now, there's, there's this inscrutable part of God that exists, that spans the universe, that no one could ever understand. And that's what Jesus refers to as the Father, outside of himself. And then there's this part that we can talk to and that has physical form, as Moses witnessed on, the, on Mount Sinai when God said, you can only see my back. You know, this is sort of a strange idea in Jewish, uh, in ancient Jewish philosophy that God would have any sort of physical form. Because God is a, is a spiritual force. God is a presence. God is a, is a being that is totally incomprehensible to man. And yet God has a logos. God has a word. God has this part that we can see. And that's the Christian idea as well. They, they feel like, and this is Greek philosophy intermingled with the Hebrew religion, which is that uh, there's something wrong with a physical nature, and so God can't be all that. God can't have, can't, God can't be limited to a physical body. So God the Father is that part of God that we don't get, that we don't see, that is all-powerful and all-knowing. And Jesus the Son is that same being, but incarnate and mortal for a brief time. And then the Holy Ghost is also God, also that same being, but defined as the relationship between the, the inscrutable part of God and the visible and loving and comprehensible part of God that we see in Jesus. Now, is there anything fundamentally wrong with this idea? Yes and no. Um, a lot of times... I think, well, let me, let me make this more personal. I know that I have felt at times in my life that I had to feel superior because I was taught that I had the truth and people outside of my religion did not. And I think that's the wrong attitude. I now recognize that there is so much in this idea of the Trinity that I can learn from that there's no reason to call it not true. I do believe that it's incomplete, and I believe that God the Father is a being, and Jesus the Christ, while he, is, he shares a Godhead or a Godhood with his Father, he also is a separate being and has a body. So obviously this is Latter-day Saint doctrine, but also it makes very good sense. Joseph Smith taught that a correct understanding of the attributes of God is necessary to the exercise of faith. And that's why it's important. However, it's totally possible to believe in God, to follow God, to love God, and to serve God without having a perfect understanding of his nature. 
and especially in this where it touches the Trinity. So I guess my point is, this is these chapters are the source of much of modern Christianity's belief about the Trinity, and there's nothing wrong with that belief. It is such a powerful belief, and it, and it strikes to the heart of many truths about the relationship with Jesus and the Father. And there is so much to love about what modern Christians believe and mainstream Christians believe about that relationship. And I do love what they believe, which is that Jesus is one with the Father. He is in the Father as the disciples are in Jesus. And the, the problem with this chapter of John, where Jesus describes this chapter 17, is that language just breaks down at this point. There is no way to truly explain that relationship adequately using mere words. And I don't know that I would call it frustration on Jesus's part, but perhaps on John's part or anyone trying to catalog what Jesus is actually saying, that it's the, the sense of what he was trying to convey is impossible to get across through mere words. The, the relationship between Jesus and his Father, I love the fact that that relationship in mainstream Christianity is considered to be in itself a sentient being, a powerful being, a member of the Godhead. How wonderful that is because their relationship has shaped worlds without number and creatures like you and me and everything that we see. That very relationship governs everything that we know or ever will know, and it is truly wonderful. So the fact that it has been given a name and called the Holy Ghost by so many people, I don't have a problem with that. That's my attitude towards the, the mainstream Christianity's idea of the Trinity, is that I think it's beautiful. And I think it's incomplete, but it's still beautiful. It's still wonderful. And there's so much that we should take from it rather than rejecting it outright. And we should respect people who love that idea for loving that idea, because, because it is truly a beautiful idea. And at the same time, it does seem pretty clear from the wording in, to me at least, from the wording in chapter 17, that Jesus is not saying he's the same being as the Father, because for one thing, he says, Father, help, these, help my friends, help my disciples, help these people that I love, Help them to be one in me as I am in thee. And that word as means in the same way. So he's not talking about them being the same person. What he's saying is help us to be so unified that it's as if we were one person, right? This is, this is a metaphorical way of speaking when he says one. And I guess the, the goal is to make it less and less metaphorical as we go. That as we become more and more one with each other, it's, we're speaking less and less figuratively and more literally the closer we get to being one. To the point where when you're talking about Jesus and the Father, Jesus even says, if you've seen me, one of his disciples, as they're, uh, as they're speaking, they say, show us the Father. Jesus, you, you keep talking about the Father. Well, well, show us. We'd love to see the Father. And he says, Do you, have you been with me this long and you don't know the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this means that the relationship between Jesus and the Father at this point has reached such a point of oneness that to see one is to see the other. And I have no, I have no problem with any of those concepts. And they, they don't seem to contradict the idea that, that Jesus and his Father can have two separate bodies of flesh and bone or blood as Jesus had at this time. Now let's talk a little bit about Judas Iscariot. Jesus says during uh, the supper, he talks about the fact that one of them is going to betray him. And this is after the point where Jesus has washed Judas's feet. And this is why Judas is called a son of perdition. If you remember in the Doctrine and Covenants, it talks about the necessary conditions to become a son of perdition, and one is to, to receive this kind of witness, to, to be uh, given the assurance that you'd be with God, and then to put God himself, to put Jesus, 
to an open shame or to crucify him afresh. What a terrible thing it would have been to be part of the murder of Jesus. And that's what it was. We'll discuss it um, in the lessons to follow. But Jesus was murdered, what was indeed murdered. And when, when, so the question that I would ask, and I don't have an answer, I don't know that anyone could, is how could someone who walked with Jesus for so long betray him knowing that he would be killed? The mention that we have of tension between Judas and Jesus, we don't have much. We have a mention of Judas not liking that Jesus gave so much money to the poor because he was the treasurer of the group. As John put it, he held the bag. So he kept the bag of money that they would all spend that that would cover their needs. And he was probably frustrated with Jesus about giving so much of it to the poor. But this would hardly move anyone. I can't imagine anyone being moved from that to murder, especially of someone that you loved, someone that you respected. Uh, My best guess is that Judas shared some of the sensitivities of the Jewish leaders They wanted to kill Jesus because he threatened their nation. He was proclaiming himself the Messiah, and this threatened to call down the wrath of the Roman, uh, first of all, incite the people to violence, and then which would call down the wrath of the the Roman overlords. And perhaps Judas was sensitive to this. Uh, Perhaps he thought that Jesus was, in fact, engaging in blasphemy. It's so hard to say, and it's so interesting to think that of 12 people in this room, one of them was actually going to plot the the death of Jesus. And I guess the reason that I'm talking about this is a warning for all of us to stay humble. I mean, Judas had this, this powerful idea that, well, according to my theory at least, that the Messiah should look a certain way, that um, the same idea that was, that was prominent throughout all of Jewry at that time, which was that we, we can either, the Messiah is going to come and liberate us, he has to be a military Messiah, or we have to silence him for the good of everyone. It's worth killing one person, right? So interesting that his humility never reached the point where he could see the greatest of all was the humblest of all. And so that's such a stark warning that 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 sin of pride can lead all the way from being a follower of Christ to a son of perdition and a murderer. And there is no depths to which Satan will not take us if we allow our pride to give him the leeway to do so. It's one of the saddest stories that has ever been told is the story of Judas and the fact that he was willing to betray his friend. And of course, it broke Jesus's heart as we see. So Jesus sends Judas off to do what he's done, what he will do. And then he talks to his disciples about loving, loving each other. And then at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, arise, let us go hence. So he spends chapter 14 talking mostly about the spirit. And he says um, in chapter, in verse 26, the comforter will come, uh, the father will send the comforter in my name and he'll teach you all things, bring all things to your remembrance. Um, In verses 16 through 18, Jesus says, I will pray the father, he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth the world can't receive the spirit of truth because it doesn't, see it, it doesn't see the spirit of truth. It doesn't know the spirit of truth. But you know the spirit of truth, for he dwells in you. And I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So these are wonderful promises, and they have to do with Jesus coming and the Holy Ghost coming to visit them. It's so interesting. He's already starting to use this language of unity and then at the end, anyway, that's the chapter 14 is the chapter where the, we see most of the messages about the, the spirit, the comforter that will come. That's one of our main themes. That's one of our four main themes. And then at the end of that chapter, Jesus says, arise, let us go hence. 
it's my personal view from reading these chapters, that 13 and 14 occur in the upper room where the Last Supper occurred, and 15, 16, and 17 occur on the road. They're walking together towards the Garden of Gethsemane. So arise, let us go hence. They all get up and start walking. And then as they're walking, Jesus is talking. I don't know. I like to have a mental picture of what's going on during the, during the scriptures. But for the rest of these, these chapters, Jesus is mostly talking. And they could be doing it anywhere. Uh, in case you're not familiar with the geography of Jerusalem, so the upper room is generally considered to be on what's known as Mount Zion which is the western, the southwestern corner of Jerusalem. And the Garden of Gethsemane is on the east side. So Mount Zion is on a hill, and the entire city of Jerusalem slopes downward from Mount Zion on the west side down towards the Valley of Kidron and, and where the Garden of Gethsemane is down in that valley. So they would, have, they would have walked down this hill. And if you've ever seen a picture represented of Jerusalem where the dome of the rock is sort of in the center. That's at the bottom of the hill. And even though it's on what's called the Temple Mount, the city rises above it. You can see the city arrayed out before you with the the dome of the rock there at the bottom. And it is lifted up from, you know, what its immediate surroundings. And nevertheless, you can still see the whole city behind it. That's because it's on a hill. So the back of the hill is sort of the west side. And they're descending this hill and walking towards the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, when you hear the word garden, you should immediately have summoned to your mind the idea of the Garden of Eden. It's not an accident that Jesus chose the garden, a garden, as the place where he would begin the atonement. And I say begin, in case you uh, are unaware, the final the final conference, general conference talk of Elder Bruce R. McConkie talked about how on the cross, in a way that we can't quite understand, all of the suffering of Jesus returned to him there. And so the atonement was not just uh, something that began or something that occurred in the Garden of Gethsemane and was over. And I actually have my own personal opinions about this. Uh, They're very personal, and I'm going to discuss them next lesson. But that's why I say he began the atonement in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we should think about the Garden of Eden when we hear the word garden. And Jesus was trying purposely to evoke that image in our minds. So remember that in the temple, in the holy place, on the walls, the decorations all had to do with this Garden of Eden imagery. So that as the priest traveled from the altar to the Holy of Holies, he was going from earthly to heavenly things, traveling back through the fall, undoing the fall as he made that journey. That is the point of the temple, is to be a symbol of that journey. And Christ himself is the means, is the mechanism by which we make that journey. And so here is Christ traveling from the world to the garden and then to the tomb where he would, uh, where he would rest as he brought salvation to those who were beyond the grave. So even in his atonement, Jesus was enacting potent symbolism. Uh, again, as is mentioned, I believe, in next week's Come Follow Me lesson in the manual, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane would have also probably been equipped with an olive press. And this is, uh, I, I want to say a machine, but it's really just a big stone, and you can put the olives in a, uh, in a trough, and then the stone has a single axle, and a person can walk around in a circle, and the trough is a circular one. And you take this, this round stone and, and just push the axle around in a circle, and it rolls the stone through the trough and crushes these olives so that the oil can flow out. And the fact that this, and this is how olive oil is obtained, right? This, and there are other forms of olive presses, but Jesus was in a place where intense pressure was put on olives in order to extract their essence and where the blessings of God manifested themselves in a growing garden. So two potent symbols that surrounded the, the event of his atonement. He's heading for this garden and he's walking with the disciples and talking to them. So now we're, now we're in verse 
uh, sorry, chapter 15. This is a wonderful chapter. In fact, uh, in my mission, um, my mission rules. Now, there are mission rules that apply to every missionary, and that's called the missionary handbook. But then you get mission rules if you go on a mission that are issued solely to your mission from your mission president. And part of our mission rules were we had to read John chapter 15 every week. And there were no other chapters that fit that description. And just in the first few verses, you can see why. Jesus begins, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Um, Let's skip to verse 5. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. What a wonderful idea. So we have power. We do, we do have the capability of bringing forth fruit. But we are merely branches of our Savior who is the vine. He is the source of every good thing in our lives. And, and here's another idea that is contained in this image. And that is, the vine is not where the grapes are. The grapes are on the branches. So Jesus, what Jesus is saying is, I need you, I need you to bring forth this fruit, but I don't need you specifically. And he even, he even, he even says, um, right out there in the open, if there's a vine that's not bringing forth any fruit, the Father is going to take that vine, or take that branch. If there's a branch that's not bringing forth any fruit, the Father is going to take that branch from the vine. But if there is a branch that's bringing forth fruit, the Father is going to enhance its ability to bring forth fruit. And how is he going to do that? So here's this idea of trial and persecution. He's going to purge that branch. And what does that mean? Cut off little parts of it. If the branch is growing too many leaves, and uh, let's say, for example, now I have, a, I have a piece of wood in my yard that I want a, a honeysuckle vine to grow up around. And for years, I've been trying to train it to do that. And the way that I do it is I cut little branches off at the, at the base so that the plant won't spend its energy building branches where I don't want them to grow, where I don't need them. I want them up on top of the wood, this wood frame so that they can beautify it and so that the length of the entire vine will increase. And that's what it means to purge a branch is you're going to clip away those parts that are growing in the wrong direction. And that's going to hurt. I mean, those are your limbs if you if you sort of draw an analogy between a person and a plant, those are your limbs that are being cut off. And that's a painful process. So purging, you know, in a in a horticultural sense isn't painful. But in a human sense, we think of purging as something that is a painful process. And so here, right away, Jesus is beginning to expound on this idea of suffering and tribulations when we follow him. And it's not because there's anything wrong with us. It's, in fact, in this case, it's because we're bearing fruit. And so the Father is going to increase our tests and purge us so that we can bear more fruit. It's not because we're doing anything wrong, necessarily. Now, obviously, uh, there are certainly sufferings and purgings that come because we make poor choices. But we shouldn't consider it proof that we're making poor choices just because we suffer such an important message from the gospel. So Jesus continues that the Father is glorified, now we're in verse 8, the Father is glorified when we bear fruit, and that's how we become the disciples. And again and again, Jesus comes back to this idea, if you love me, keep my commandments. He said that a few times in, in chapter 14. As the Father gave me commandments, even so do I. And if a man love me, he will keep my words. If ye love me, keep my commandments. This is uh, chapter 14, verse 15, chapter 14, verse 23, chapter 14, verse 31. Chapter, here's chapter 14, verse 20 and 21. Abide in me, and he that loveth me will keep my commandments. Now in, in chapter 15, um, from verse 9 all the way through verse 17. The Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So Jesus is 
combining the idea of obedience and the idea of unity and saying, I am one with the Father because I keep his commandments. He's telling the disciples, later on he prays for them to have this blessing. He's telling them how to gain his glory. And in chapter 17, he actually prays, Father, I want them to have some of the same glory. I want to be with you. I have kept your words. I have kept your commandments, and I am one with you. And I want all of these that you've given me out of the world. And Jesus, the reason that this is important for us to discuss, Jesus is talking about all of us that will follow him. He knew that John would write this down, and he knew that you and I would be reading it. And he's uttering this prayer not just for the disciples that are with him, although they are special disciples. They are his 12 apostles. Nevertheless, this is meant for all of us. This is meant for centuries worth of people. Millions upon millions and billions of people would read these words of Jesus. And so he's saying, I want all of you to be one with me. It's possible for our oneness to go from being figurative to literal. And I'm going to pray to the Father for that to happen, for you to get closer and closer to me. And here's how. Keep my words. Abide in my love by keeping my commandments. He can't be any clearer. It's, it's so easy to think. Now, obviously, we're not going to be perfect at that. Um, Elder Holland has such a wonderful talk about um, be therefore perfect eventually. We can forgive ourselves and we can be compassionate on ourselves for not being able to keep all of the commandments. Nevertheless, the invitation is there to never give up and to keep striving. And that's how we can gain all of the blessings of God. Now, one of the main commandments, and this was taught by President Nelson at the last conference, is to repent. So simple. When we, when we break any of the other commandments, that's the most important one. And so we think, oh man, I just, I know that I have so many blessings that I have forfeited because I haven't kept the commandments of God. Great then keep the one that says repent and get them all back. And it really does work. I mean, Jesus died so that we would have access to that commandment above any other. He continues in chapter 15. Now we're looking at verse 18. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore... The world hateth you. So again, this idea of being persecuted and because you're good, you're being purged. Because you're following my words and you're abiding in my love, the world is hating you. You have to choose. You get to choose who loves you. Do you want to be loved by God or do you want to be loved by the world? And all around us, we can see people making different choices, going in utterly different directions on this same choice every day. Um, And it's in fact, it's a very interesting aspect of our society is that we literally can see the choices that people make. If you're on social media from time to time, I don't, I don't recommend you spend too much time there, but you can literally see the choices that people make. They either post pictures or they write about the choices that they're making, and especially about the things that they're choosing to believe. And not always. Sometimes these posts are completely neutral. But quite often, it's very clear which direction someone is moving in by what they choose to, to post, either the pictures or the words that they choose to have rep- represent them, show the nature of the choices that they're making. Do they want to be loved by the world, or do they want to be loved by God? And sometimes this is not an egregious choice, right? We want to be loved by the world. This is a totally human impulse. And so we post a picture maybe of ourselves uh, trying to look good. <laughs> this is an attempt to be loved by the world. I don't know that there's a sin in that, except that it is an attempt to be loved by the world. And it's a dangerous impulse, right? Jesus is showing that if, you, if you're of the world, if the world loves you, that's an indication uh, of where you stand, right? Of the fact that uh, it may not be clear enough how the love that we have for God, if the world loves us. An interesting thing to think about because he's, he's equating the world hating us with us loving him. 
And I guess in saying that, I also should qualify it. There are plenty of people in the world who also love Jesus. And so when I don't think this is what Jesus was talking about when he's talking about the world. So if, if you were to post something and people love it, uh, that doesn't mean that you're not following Jesus. Uh, so I'm just trying to make a philosophical point, and I'm not trying to pass judgment on the way anyone chooses to live their life on social media. It's, it's not uh, an excuse for us to look at others and make judgments on their choices, but to be introspective about our choices and the way that we choose to interact. That is how my, uh, my last statement was intended. And so often, and, and again, that is the invitation on social media. That's the problem with social media is we're, we're invited to either compare ourselves with others or to judge them. So I would say, you know, if you're going to engage in that observation, use it as a learning opportunity in your own life rather than an opportunity to compare or to judge. But again, Jesus once again says in verse 23, He that hateth me hateth my Father also. So if we love Jesus, we love the Father. If we see in Jesus, we've seen the Father. If we hate Jesus, then we hate the Father. Continuing verse 24, this is John chapter 15 still. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, meaning his healings and his teachings uh, and all of his miracles, if I had not done these works, they had not had sin, but now... Have they both seen and hated, both me and my father? But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. So the world hates Jesus, and the world should be put in quotes, right? The world are those people that have so much pride, like Judas, that they're not capable of seeing the Savior. Instead, they see somebody who's standing in their way of the, of the way that they think the world should be. The world hates Jesus because he has done such wonderful things and he invites us to leave behind our pride and change. Now, Jesus returns again in chapter 16 to the theme of the Holy Ghost coming to visit us. And he equates that idea with the the teaching that he's going to go away, right? Now, chapter 16 is where he starts talking very explicitly. I'm going to be gone. I'm going to, you're all going to weep because you see me leave and your hearts will be broken, but I have to leave. It's totally expedient that I leave. And if I don't, then you won't have the same blessings that you would if I, if I, if I stayed. Um, John chapter 16, verse 7, we see the greatest expression of this idea. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So the Comforter is going to come and make the world a better place, but only because I go and can send him. And Jesus promises that he also will return. So the, this is going to be a heartbreaking time for the disciples, but I think it's also interesting to note that it's only in the absence of Jesus that the, that the Holy Ghost can visit them. And I don't know whether this is true or not, but the idea struck me that perhaps this has to do with faith and knowledge. Right? The difference between having a sure knowledge that here's the Savior in front of me teaching me, and when the Holy Ghost comes, I have the, the choice to exercise faith and listen and believe, rather than the certainty that here's the Savior teaching me. And I think that was the opportunity that Jesus was giving them, was you've had me with you for so long, and now I'm going to give you the opportunity to choose faith and to choose righteousness and to choose obedience and love the way that I'm teaching you now. Chapter 7 is known as the great intercessory prayer. And this is Jesus praying for his disciples so fervently to the Father. It reminds me of the, the words used in Third Nephi when uh, Nephi describes the prayer of Jesus as being so wonderful that words cannot describe it. Neither can be, neither can be conceived in the heart of man so wonderful things we heard the Father both, we both heard and saw the, Jesus pray for us unto the Father. And um, this prayer is as close as we get in, uh, in the scriptures that we have of knowing what those words were. And as you can see, as, and as I mentioned before, the words fail him. 
uh, or the words failed John to describe what he wrote. And I'll give you just one example. We'll start in verse 21. Jesus prays that they all may be one. Let's start one verse before just to make a little more sense. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast loved me. So, in, in case this sounds a little bit awkward because it's repetitious, and it's uh, frankly just strange. It's hard to understand. It's important to remember how Hebrew poetry works. It works through repetition, and it works through this very sort of imagery. This is a poem. Jesus is not only praying, but he is composing an extemporaneous poem in the style of ancient Hebrew scripture, of Old Testament scripture and prophecy. And so this is, this is like something you would read right out of the middle of Isaiah. So many of Isaiah's prophecies were also poems. And uh, so that's the, that's the nature of the great intercessory prayer. And Jesus made mention of this idea that we find in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is life eternal. By the way, this is the only description of what eternal life is in the whole New Testament. Uh, so important to pay attention here. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So that is what eternal life is, is for us to know him. Then he, then he spends the rest of the chapter praying for us to know him. And so that was what, what he was talking about, that they may know that thou hast sent me. Now you'll remember we've talked several times in the last few weeks about Isaiah 56, this idea that the invitation that was once only belonged to the children of Israel would be extended to this to the foreigner and to the eunuch, that they would have a place better than of sons and daughters, that anyone would be invited into the the church in the last days to be even to have priests taken from among their number who could work in the temple, an honor once reserved only for the Levites. And here Jesus is praying for that very blessing, that that the uh, the people that would believe on the disciples' words could also be made one. This is him opening up. So there was the the theme in Isaiah is that there would be a certain amount of time that the children of Israel would have these the blessings of the gospel exclusively, and at some point, it would be opened up to the to the entire world. And here's Jesus praying for that very blessing, saying, not only does these disciples, but anyone who believes on their words, that we can all be one, that everyone can be brought in. And so we've learned from Jesus in these brief few chapters so many important, wonderful ideas that the Spirit would be sent to us when he goes away that we show our love for him through our willingness to make choices in obedience in keeping his word and in showing love for each other, that we could be visibly disciples of Christ. Men shall know we're his disciples when we love each other and we love God by obeying his word and keeping his word. And that's how Jesus showed his love for the Father, that we can expect that life is not going to get easier just because we embark on a journey to follow Jesus. In fact, we can expect additional challenges. We can expect to be purged, and we can expect to be thwarted because of that, and that there's nothing wrong with us when that happens. And in fact, we can expect that God's hand is showing itself in our lives when we feel resistance to following the path of Jesus. And finally, the idea that we can be one with Jesus and Jesus invites us to be one with him, even as he is one with the Father. And he wants us to share in his glory that eternal life is knowing him, that the very nature of eternal life is to come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and of his Father. I'll I'll conclude with this. This is John chapter 17. Verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, 
but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. This is what you and I do. Every week we endeavor to understand the word uh, of truth of God. And this is the way we don't, we're not taking ourselves out of the world. We're living in the world. We're engaging with the world. We're interacting with the world because that's how we bear fruit. We are the branches on the vine of Jesus, and we're meant to live in the world and bear fruit there. Jesus doesn't want us to be taken out of the world, but it is through studying this word of truth and remembering him every day that, that God can keep us from the evil that does exist in the world. I pray that we can remember that we are the branches on the vine of Jesus, that without him we can do nothing, but with him we can do everything. He can make us grow into such fantastic versions of ourselves that we never would have imagined if we'll trust him and stick to his word and the Father's word of truth. And we'll have eternal life the more we come to know him. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.